This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Francesco Amodio, an associate professor of economics and international development at McGill University. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Workplace Incentives and Organizational Learning, which is joined with Miguel Martinez Carrasco and forthcoming at the Journal of Labor Economics. Francesco, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jordi. Thanks. So, Francesco, the title of this paper contains the words organizational learning in it. But I was wondering whether, from the perspective of economists, a slightly easier way to frame the paper is as a paper of learning from peers. And I'm saying this because organizational learning is a concept, if I understand it well, you can correct me, that comes mostly from outside the economics literature. Uh, and I understand that it typically refers to knowledge that is tacit, is diffuse among all members and levels of the organization. Whereas here, you, what you study is a little bit more specific. It's essentially how workers are able to observe their colleagues and learn from them. Before we go into the specifics of your setting, I was wondering whether you could comment on whether this learning from peers uh, effect has been studied in the economics literature and what has been found there. Right. So the way I, uh, we think about it is organizational learning is a, is a broader concept that nests the one of peer learning among co-workers. Uh, so the literature on organizational learning, as you were saying, as it is referred to outside of economics, has to do with the all, all the creation, the process by which knowledge is created, developed and retained within organization and also exchanged across organizations. So peer learning among co-workers, I would say, is one example of organizational learning. In the context of our paper, we think that the firm itself is also experimenting to some extent, and we briefly touch upon that in the paper. That's why we decided it was more appropriate to use this broader concept than just learning from co-workers. In economics, there is a literature, as you were saying, on learning among co-workers. This literature falls within the broader literature of peer effects in general. And uh, when talking about peer learning, we're talking about workers learning from each other about, for instance, the use of new technologies or the, the use of particular inputs in a particular production process. So there is a literature more in personnel economics that has to do, for instance, with salespeople and how they affect each other in their choices. Uh, there is a literature then also in development on farmers and how they learn from each other. That's the uh, literature I may be somewhat more familiar with. Uh, so this literature in general finds that uh, workers use not only the information that they are able to collect by themselves on their own, let's say inputs and output, but also use the information that is available that is made available by, by peers in, in, uh, in these learning processes. I think that this is the first time that I'm going to plug a previous podcast episode in here. So one of these papers in personal economics that you're referring is actually episode three in this series of podcasts. Uh, Christopher Stanton came to talk about the salesman experiment that right. you were just referring to in which uh, you know, they encourage uh, workers sharing tips with each other about how to optimize their, their share process. So specifically with respect to personal economics, is it correct to say that the papers about uh, learning from peers in that literature are mostly about 
how to provide tips about how to optimize the production process, how to produce better. Yeah, I would say that is correct. Uh, so in particular, when workers are faced with a new product that has been introduced in the production line or when there is a new technology of production that is, that is put forward, that's when you know work, there is some learning involved about this new technology or this new pro product and so yes it is about learning how to how to make the most out of of this new technology or input what i think was missing in the literature and that's where our paper tries to fill the gap is how all this process of learning interacts with uh, instances in which incentives to workers are changing so that's where i think the the value added of our paper is so in terms of the literature in development it will it will also be about learning about say there's a new fertilizer we may want to use it or not or in these doses and if we observe our neighboring farmers we can you know also learn learn from them so again it will be about how to you know learn about the combinations of different inputs or different activities in order to, to produce better now as you are saying your paper is mostly interested in the interaction between this learning and worker incentives but the way that worker incentives affect this learning is precisely in sparing learning about the shape of the production function. So I guess one way to think about this that, that you use uh, in the paper is that there is some type of function that links the effort that workers put onto the production that the firm gets. And as you say in the paper, the workers are not perfectly informed about how this production function looks throughout and I was wondering whether you could give us like a, an intuition as to why workers in a company, after having worked for many years, perhaps with the same technology and everything, will be uninformed about this. Because presumably they know how much effort they put every week. They know how much they produce every week. After a while, they should kind of figure it out. Right. So... I think the key distinction that needs to be made is between local knowledge and about the production function and the production process and global knowledge over it. Because the system of incentives that is in place at a particular point in time is going to make workers operate with the production technology at a particular point. But then, And so at that point, they're going to be able to gain experience. They're going to be able to gain knowledge. And so definitely after 20 years that you have operated with the same production process under the same incentive system, there is nothing left to learn. However, if could be the case that when incentives change, when the system of incentives change, you're going to be brought to operate in a different portion of the production function. And the information that you had from before may or may not be useful about uh, this new point around the production function, this new equilibrium point of the production function where they're operating. So that's uh, that's why, you know, as incentives change, workers are brought to operate in a different environment, in a different portion of the production function, and they have to learn what happens at this new, uh, under this new system of incentives. So to give you an example, suppose that you are working uh, in a store, okay, you're selling t-shirts or something. If you have very low powered incentives, then you're not going to be putting too much effort in selling. And so it's not that important for you to learn, for instance, who are who is the customer type that is more that is going to be more easy to convince, who is the one that is not as easy to convince. But once you start, if you provide these same workers with high power of incentives, then they might start to be interested into new sell, selling techniques, into identifying the, the customers that are uh, easy to sell to versus others and so on. Let me see whether I can say that something similar to what you said, but now in slightly more formal terms. We try to be informal here, but so imagine that I don't know how the function looks. It is a function between effort and production, but I know that it is a linear function. Then if I know the slope around the point in which I am, I know I can deduce immediately the whole function because I know that the slope is the same everywhere. 
But now imagine that the function is a crazy function that is non-linear, perhaps not even monotonic. Now I may know how much output I'm getting with how much effort and maybe even the derivative around my point, but I don't know the rest, right? So that would be where the moment I have to switch to a different level of effort that is probably optimal, I need to learn about the, that shape. That's perfectly correct. That's actually what, what our conceptual framework in the paper, our model tries to capture exactly that. You know, if the production function is linear, then there is no longer a distinction between what I was calling local versus global learning, because whatever you learn around the point is going to generalize throughout the support of the production function, the entire support. If instead that's not the case and the production function is not linear, if it's say piecewise linear, or if it has some degree of concavity, then uh, what you learn at the particular point may not be useful at a different point. So this is like mostly an empirical contribution. Uh, so uh, I was wondering whether to fix terms a little bit, you could describe the actual setting in which the study takes place. So it's a firm that produces eggs in Peru, the second Peruvian paper to appear in the podcast. Could you describe what the production function means in this setting? What is effort? other features about the learning process, the workers, and so on. Yeah. So this is, as you were saying, a farm, a big farm that produces eggs. And production is carried out in different sectors. In each one of these sectors, you find a number of workers, each one of them being responsible with of a, of a particular group of, of chickens. And what the worker does is essentially the main effort that the worker has to exert has to do with feeding the chickens and then collecting the eggs every day that they produce. There is also some effort or devoted to cleaning and maintaining the facilities, but the feeding of, of, of chickens is the most important dimension of effort that the worker exerts. So there is a map where the production function in this case will be a, a function that maps the amount of food that the worker gives to the chickens into the number of eggs that they're able to collect. Now, of course, as you may imagine, there is a sweet spot there in the sense that if you give too little food to the chickens, they're not going to be very productive. But also if you give too much food to the chickens, that can be harmful for productivity. So there is a, an amount of food that maximizes the productivity of these chickens. The other thing that is important to say is that there are a number of other uh, variables and factors that may affect the productivity of the chickens. For instance, whether there is a disease spreading around with the temperature on a particular day or whether it's raining or not, whether uh, you are the way you're distributing the food. So not just the quantity, but also the way you spread it among the chickens versus, you know, whether you do that evenly enough so that every chicken in the batch gets his, his, the same amount versus not. All of these things are going are gonna to matter for productivity. And one thing that matters as well is how old the hens are. Yeah, so the each worker, as I was saying, is, is responsible for a group of chickens. And the, the important thing is that this group of chickens, and we're talking about 10,000 of them on average per worker, you can really think about it as a, as a single production input because all these 10,000 chickens are of the same breed, bread, breed and have the same um, age. So they are both, as when they're still eggs from a third company, and then they are, they are raised in a, in a dedicated sector and then they're moved to production, always uh, all together. And, and assigned to a particular worker until they get old enough and at that moment they're discarded. And you know, if some of them die for other reasons because of diseases and so on, while they're being assigned to a worker, they're not replaced with new ones of different age, precisely because there is an interest in keeping the, these input batches as separate as possible one from the other. You have described very well the, the production process. Now, what about the learning process? At this point, we haven't discussed at all 
where does this learning from peers come from? Yeah. When the worker, especially at the beginning, when a particular worker is assigned a particular batch of, of chickens, not all batches are the same. And so the worker has to learn over the productivity of these chickens and has to learn over what is the amount of effort, meaning the amount of food to distribute to these chickens that maximizing maximizes his own payoff as a worker, which depends in terms on, on, on the incentives that are provided at the firm. So that's when the learning occurs, because at the beginning, the fact that these chickens are new and there is a lot to learn over them brings uncertainty over what is the amount of food that maximizes the worker payoffs. And the worker has to then exerts effort, observe the realized output, and uses the output as a signal of the shape of the production function. And precisely because on the one hand, there is this uncertainty in inputs and their quality. And on the other hand, there is uncertainty over the production function. There is a learning process that occurs. So observing one output realization is not enough for the worker to learn immediately what's going on. It's going to take some time until the uncertainty over the, the quality of these input batches uh, is resolved. But the worker can also observe not only their own effort and production, obviously, but also the effort and production of what peers so the workers are working alongside one another in what we call sheds. These are kind of long-shaped facilities. In each one of these sheds, there is one to four different production units. So a, a unit, one worker and one batch of, of, of chickens, that's what we call one production unit. And so the worker can easily talk to or observe what his co-worker is doing. In particular, his co-worker that is located in, the, he's assigned the production unit just next to his own in the same shed. So on top of observing how much effort the worker puts and how much effort, how much output it gets, the worker is also able to observe how much effort the co-worker puts in by looking at how many times he, he distributes food during the day, for instance, and also the amount of output by looking at you know how many baskets of eggs this co-worker is able to, to get on a, on a particular day. So this is a, a slightly unusual empirical setting in that, so typically in moral hazard models or in incentives-like models, the firm as well as the econometrician don't observe the level of effort. But here, both you and the firm are able to observe the level of effort because, or at least one important dimension of the level of effort, uh, which is the number of sacks of grain that are distributed among the hens. Okay, they are very heavy and so on and so forth. Now, the firm cannot observe the effort in cleaning the units or the care in collecting the eggs. In your empirical analysis, you are going to like abstract from every other dimension. And I was wondering whether, are we missing something here or have the management in the firm told you that, you know, yeah, there are other things that matter, but this is really by far the most important one. And therefore, it's a really good approximation to this production process, linking, you know, the distribution of grain to the final output in terms of the number of eggs. Yeah, definitely. This is uh, unusual, as you were saying, the fact that the firm observes the amount of effort that the worker exerts. What is important to realize is that the extent to which a particular level of effort results into output depends on idiosyncratic conditions and factors, as I was saying before. Depends on the particular quality of the chickens, depends on weather conditions, or depends on, uh, on other dimensions of efforts, as you were saying. So that's what makes the asymmetry of information still, still salient in this context. So in the paper, what we do is to use information 
information about the, the quality of output, potentially as a proxy for other dimensions of effort, in the sense that when um, we, we know not only the number of total eggs that the worker collects, but also the, the fraction of them that is labeled as good eggs, which means that they can immediately proceed to packaging, and as opposed to being eggs that are either broken or dirty, which means that they have to be clean. So you can think that the, the fraction of good eggs could be thought of as a proxy of how of the extent to which the worker handles eggs with a particular care, which is another possible dimension of effort that is less observed by the firm, but that is uh, that matters for productivity essentially. So we, we show that there is no changes in this other dimension, in the, the fraction of good eggs. Could you talk now about, if you want, the second part of the title, which is the workplace incentives? So you are exploiting here like a change in incentives that took place uh, in the firm, what happened? Yeah, so in the first part of our sampling period, which is from, uh, say, June uh, 2011 until February 2012, the workers were paid a fixed wage and then a bonus. And the bonus depended on two things the amount of eggs the workers collect, but also the amount of food they were giving to the chickens, in the sense of the number of, of, key, of sacks of food that they were giving to the chickens. So the, you can think about it as the firm rewarding workers for both input and output, okay? effort and output. Um, then perhaps not surprisingly, uh, the firm thought that the workers were giving too much food under this incentive scheme. And so they moved to a scheme, to a, uh, they, they changed the bonus formula and they only rewarded, they started to reward workers only based on output, meaning only based on the amount of food that uh, they were collecting. So this is to say that in the first part of the of the sampling period, workers had an incentive in exerting effort per se because that was directly rewarded. While in the second part of the sampling period, now workers, it's rewarded based on output only. So there's no longer this, incent- this direct incentive to, to input. Now, a very interesting question for us was why would the firm adopt this scheme to begin with, meaning the one in which they are rewarding for, for effort. And we came to know some interesting theoretical results in the literature that tell you that this may be optimal when because essentially effort is something the worker has perfectly control over so even if it's not what the firm directly wants it, it can still reward that for insurance purposes just like one would do in a traditional uh, principal agent model with with the fixed part of the wage so you have a stylized uh, theoretical model in which you derive the prediction that we have been uh, discussing throughout uh, which is that when incentives change workers want to change their effort and for that they need to learn about different parts of the production function. Could you tell us how this Thales model works and, and uh, what is the specific prediction that it delivers? So in the model, each worker produces output and output is a function of its own effort, but also of some other idiosyncratic component, which has to do with the quality of the chickens, with weather conditions and other unobserved determinants about it. So the worker is uncertain about the shape of the production function. And so the fact that on the one hand, there is this uncertainty over other idiosyncratic factors combined with uncertainty over the production function, that what generates the scope of, of learning because the worker cannot immediately disentangle how much of the output is due to his own effort versus how much of that is due to these other idiosyncratic factors. Okay. Now, what happens is that as the worker exert, so then the worker is uh, is motivated by the firm according to a particular wage that rewards them based on output and effort in the first part of the of the sampling period or based on output only. So there is a parameter that governs the relative weight that the firm puts on effort versus 
versus output in the, in the wage scheme, essentially in the wage structure. And so what happens is that when the worker exerts effort, he observes the realized output and uses that information to learn over the shape of the production function at that particular level of effort. So as time goes by and the worker experiments, so puts in effort, looks at the results and so on, he's going to get more and more, more, more and more precise information over the marginal product of effort at that particular point. And so that initial uncertainty is going to be resolved. Now, what happens though, is that if the contract parameter changes, meaning if the firm changes the relative weight attached to output versus effort in the compensation scheme, now the worker is brought to operate in a new different portion of the production function where potentially the marginal product of effort is again unknown. And so this starts, this makes the worker start the learning process all over again. Importantly, the worker does not only observe his own effort and output, but also observes his co-workers input and uh, effort and output, as we were saying before. And so in uh, this learning, in his, he's going to use this additional information that comes from co-workers in learning over the, uh, the production function. And so that's the prediction that we take to the data, whether a change in parameters uh, in the wage structure, in the parameters of the wage structure, trigger a new learning process among co-workers at the new equilibrium. Let me, let me see whether like a slightly more specific or narrower prediction for what you're saying uh, follows. There is a worker that puts a certain level of effort and has a certain expectation about how much output is going to come out of that effort. Now there is the observation of say higher output than expected. It could be due to the you know random shock that you were describing earlier, but with positive probability, it could be from the fact that the derivative of the production function that the worker was expecting at this particular point is actually higher. Therefore, the returns to putting more effort are higher than initially expected. That is what creates the adjustment. Likewise, when the worker observes the neighbor putting a certain level of effort, the worker has an expectation about what the neighbor will get. If the neighbor gets more than expected, the worker will update upwards again about the derivative of the production function. This is the, the mechanism, you know, through which not, not, not only through which the learning takes place, but through which the behavior and outcomes of the peers translates into the behavior effort of the worker. Yeah, that's correct. Especially, you know, more precisely, given that each worker, so given the worker expectation about the production function, the shape of the production function and marginal product of effort at a particular level of effort, if he observes his co-workers putting a different level of effort than his own, then that means that from the perspective of the worker, and his beliefs, that co-worker is making a suboptimal choice. So when she sees that actually that choice is that co-worker is doing unexpectedly well, then it's going to change his own behavior towards what his co-worker has been doing in light of this new uh, revealed information. Uh, does this type of like learning mechanism assume that the worker and the peer are observing or subject to a very similar production function. For example, imagine that I am like a 60-year-old worker for whom carrying around sacks of 50 kilograms of grain is really tough. And then I observe that my 20-year-old neighbor is putting much more effort than me and getting much more output. I may think, well, yes, of course, that will happen, but that's just that this is just because the, the personal cost of effort of my neighbor is much lower. Therefore, 
his optimal point is going to be different from my own. I'm not really going to adjust so much towards his behavior. Right. There needs to be an element. So the, the, the co-worker's environment needs to be relatable to the one of the worker along a number of dimensions, like the cost of effort, the quality of the of the chickens, their breed, their age, and so on. So in the paper, in the appendix, we do some exercises like this to see whether learning, of course, whether peer learning is actually more empirically more salient when there is this, uh, this when there are, there are more similar conditions between a worker and his co-worker. So yes, that needs to be definitely the case. The other thing that came to mind in, in studying this setting is that learning from peers seems like a relatively inefficient way to go around solving this problem, uh, especially given the information that the firm has. So the firm has inf- access to information about the level of effort and production of every worker in every unit, in every uh, shed, and in every week going back a long time. Uh, because this is a shock to incentives, but not a shock to technology. That data from the firm should be really valuable uh, to workers. Of course, even after giving to workers, they may want to adjust upwards or downwards depending on their specific conditions, but this is potentially really valuable information. It will seem that to solve this problem of learning, the firm should be just giving the type of a plotted curve that you that you calculate in figure A2 of the paper. Uh, and then you will get very close to problem solved. Yeah, and even more than that, what the firm could do at that point could think about what's the optimal amount of food given expected conditions and could just require the workers to exert that amount of food without any additional incentives. You know, you, with a, you know, it could require from the worker a particular amount of effort and then fire the worker if he doesn't comply, right? Uh, but the, the reason we think that does not happen is because of this residual variation in, in determinants of output um, that may remain unpredictable to at least some extent. From the perspective. So definitely the firm could do better in terms of collecting information and so on, but it's still going to be some, some residual uncertainty that is never going to be resolved because of idiosyncratic conditions. Okay, so can you tell us what is the data that uh, you use to study the presence of uh, peer learning following the incentive change? Yeah, so we have records on uh, the uh, amount of food distributed by each worker in each production unit in a particular sector of this, of this plant from, uh, let's say, eight to nine months before the incentive change to another eight to nine months after the incentive change. And so on each day, we know the worker who was assigned to a particular production unit. We know how much food it distributed to the chickens. We know uh, how many eggs the worker collected from these chickens. We have we know a bunch of characteristics about the, this batch of chickens assigned to the worker, meaning their age, their breed, and their expected productivity as measured as this is an, a measure that comes from the supplier, from the company that sells the, the, chi- the, the birds to the this company uh, that gives an estimate of how much many eggs they will produce in a, at every which week of their life. So we have all this information. And so what we can do is to uh, look at the effort choices of co-workers in terms of food distributed. We can look at the effort choices of co-workers and their output on every day. And in particular, how their effort choices change depending on what their co-workers did and how well they did both before and after the incentive change. So you're going to take this data, you're going to uh, develop some uh, empirical strategy in order to identify, find the presence of peer learning uh, in this particular setting. Just to, to remind everybody, the hypothesis here is that I am a worker, I observe the effort choice of my neighbor, and I have an expectation about their productivity. 
If my neighbor produces above that expectation, I update upwards and then I want to exert more effort in the previous in the in the next period. If my neighbor produces below that expectation, I update downwards. And this is especially when I'm looking for a new optimal level of effort following the change of incentives. This is the, the objective uh, here. So you have certain preliminary evidence about the shape of the production function, the one that I was referring to earlier, because you have access to the data of the effort and production of every work in every week. How does that look? Yeah, so if we were to plot the output, meaning the number of eggs collected by the worker over the amount of food that the worker distributes, we observe that there is a, a that the production function is concave. And then most importantly, what we can show is that the production function is really well approximated by a piecewise linear production function, where you have an initial slope up to a point, and then after the, you have a kink, and then there is another uh, lower slope after that point. And what we see in, in the summary statistics in just uh, you know unconditional averages is that the amount of food that the workers were giving on average in the before the incentive change was lying in the second portion of the production function meaning in a portion that had this lower slope while the amount of food that they're giving after the incentive uh, change on average lies in the first portion of the of the production function where the slope when the slope is is, is higher and this is an indication that whatever they had learned in the, up to the point where incentives change about the margin product of effort does not generalize to, to what 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 they need to do afterwards uh, in, ter- in order to maximize their payoff. So I want to compare what you have just told me about the shape of the production function with something that you said earlier. Uh, earlier, you said that the best way to maximize production is not necessarily to give as much food as possible, but there's like an optimal level of food that maximizes production. So that optimal level of food that maximizes production will imply a concave curve, but also a curve that has a maximum and that therefore has a negative slope from that point onwards. But you don't actually find a negative slope in your data. What I meant there is that there is a, an optimal that uh, that maximizes profits for the firm or the workers payoff. So, you know, when we depict the production function, there is no cost associated with, with the amount of food we distribute. If we were to incorporate those costs, uh, then we w- there would be a maximum. Yeah. I mean, in- intuitively, we have to believe that that the production is not necessarily always increasing in how much Correct. grain these hens eat, of course. Like if you were to force feed them, at some point they will die and you wouldn't get any eggs, you know? So... But it's not at least in the relevant portion of the, you know, of the firm that you study. Correct. Okay, good. So now this is a learning from peers. Like peer effects are notoriously difficult to identify. Can you uh, describe what are like the, you know, typical challenges, perhaps slightly associated with this setting? Uh, to identify just peer effects or learning from peers? Yeah, so this, there is a number of empirical challenges related to the identification of peer effects and learning. In particular, if you see two co-workers making the same choices and the same decisions when it comes to the amount of effort, it will be tempting to conclude that they are doing so because they're learning from each other. But there may be other reasons why they are exerting this, why they're making the same choices. Most importantly, when there is some common conditions, some common factors that are driving their decisions in the same they're making them act in the same in the same way um, on top of this if we were to think about a regression equation an estimating equation where we look at how the choices of one worker as dependent variable relate to the choices of another worker as independent variable 
if we were just to estimate these parameters of this equation using OLS, we would run into what's called the reflection problem, as first identified by Mansky in 1993, which is basically due to the fact that we would need to solve these as a system of simultaneous equations rather than treating these observations uh, independently. So these are just two of the of the potential challenges that, that arise when when trying to identify pure effects. So I mean, we're in, in other words, the thing is, as usual, correlation is not causation. So when we see workers making the same decision, uh, that does, does not necessarily mean that the decision of one worker are causing the workers to change its own decisions. And that's what, what we're trying to get at when thinking about learning. So I, you will tell us in a second what is the actual regression that you are going to run. But let me just provide a preview of that regression, which is that you are going to regress the present as a function of the past, which is like how much effort the worker puts or maybe increases the effort relative to the previous period as a function of what the neighbor did uh, in the previous period. And that will be, you know, like lagging the independent variable by uh, one period or several periods will be, you know, a natural way to break that uh, reflection problem. Uh, with respect to the first issue, which is like some common shock, let's say it is raining, therefore it is optimal for me to feed the chickens less, uh, but it is also optimal for my neighbor to feed the chickens less. And that creates a correlation, but it's not that we're causing each other, but that we are affected by the same unobservable shock. So one thing that comes to mind there is that this type of a, um, you know, like common shocks that drive the correlations should not necessarily differ between the period before the change in incentives and the period after the change in incentives. So if you were to do you know, any correlation in which there is like an interaction with the post period, that will kind of be giving you the differential effect rather than be you know, due to the, the common shock. That's true, but, you know, we cannot uh, rule that out. You know, as a, this is a change in, 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 so it could still be that this, the incidence of these common shocks is, is particularly higher in the post period than, than it was in the pre-period. So in general, you know, any, um, anything that is occurring over time that may change the extent of these shocks or the likelihood, that will be problematic for us. And this is one of the reasons why we do not really, we cannot really study the effect of changing incentives on outcomes in this context, because we would only have a before and after. After. We, did, we have some more refined strategy to, uh, we, we will need some more refined strategy to look at that. So what I said earlier about it is raining and that creates a common shock. Maybe if you have data from, if in the post period, there are more days of rain than in the pre period, exactly. that will be a problem. So mm -hmm. what is the actual empirical strategy that you use to capture these learning effects? Yeah, so we're going to be looking at the extent to which a given worker changes his own effort from one day to the other, meaning whether it changes the amount of food that it's distributing to his own chickens from one day to the other, and related to the amount of food that his co-worker gave in the, on the previous day. Not only that, though, we can, we're going to look at whether the worker adjusts his own level of effort towards the level he observed his co-worker exerted the day before, differentially more when the co-worker did unexpectedly well. And as we, the way we operationalize this is whether the co-worker output was higher than own output in the period before. So in other words, we're going to be looking at whether I change my own effort in the direction of what I observed my peer did the day before, but not only that, whether we do so more, differentially more when we observe these peers doing particularly well compared to own output. I'm going to repeat this because as I, when I was reading the paper, it took me a while to understand it. Uh, so the dependent variable is the change of effort relative to the previous period. That's, that's easy to understand. So the independent variable is an interaction. And it is an interaction of, we're going to call that interaction, as you do in the paper, M. 
um, it is an integration of two variables. The first one is the difference between the effort of the worker and the effort of the neighbor in the previous period. And the second part of the interaction is a dummy variable uh, which takes value one if in the previous period the neighbor produced more than the worker and zero otherwise. So you are going to regress the change in effort of the worker on this variable M using panel data, so controlling for the standard individual fixed effects and time fixed effects. So just to understand the intuition uh, of this variable, imagine that in the previous period, the neighbor produced less than the worker. So then the, the dummy, the second dummy is zero. So the variable M, which is the product of the dummy and the difference in effort is also zero. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that in the previous period, the neighbor produced more than the worker. So then the dummy is one. And now the variable is going to be equal to the difference in effort between the worker and the neighbor. Uh, so if I did better than you, I am the worker, you are the neighbor. I don't care how much effort we put. But if you did better than me, I'm going to adjust my effort upwards if uh, you put more effort than me and downwards if uh, I put more effort than you. That would be the, the, the way that just mechanically that interaction uh, yes, changes, no? Yeah, so let me say that this is uh, uh, this is not new in the sense that there is this AR paper by Colin and Udry on pineapple growers in Ghana, and they use a, a very similar strategy looking at whether farmers change the level of input from one season to the other towards the level of their neighboring farmers and whether they do that differentially more upon observing their neighboring farmers doing particularly well in the previous season. So we're just taking that specification and applying it to our context with the additional advantage that we can look at how these parameters of this identified equation change over time before and after the incentives change. So I actually read that paper that you are mentioning, but at least 10 years ago. So I don't really remember it very well. In the context of your paper, I was wondering about how this relates to the theory that we were discussing earlier, because the theory is about how the neighbor did in terms of production relative to what we expected that the neighbor should have done given their level of effort. But here we're comparing the production of the neighbor with the production of the worker. So imagine the following scenario. The neighbor did better than the worker, so the dummy is one, but not by a lot. So the dummy is, is one, but the difference is very small. But this is a surprise to the worker because the network, the neighbor put much, much more effort than the worker. So then if I was the worker, I would be thinking, okay, well, yes, he did better than me, but given how much enormous effort he put, I have to update downwards in terms of what I expect is the derivative of the production function. So I would expect that when that variable M increases, I put less effort than before rather than more effort. Yeah, the in fact, one of the assumptions that we need to make in the in the theory in light of this of this issue that you raise is that the cost of effort needs to be small enough in order for this to be for, for the adjustment process to be as we discussed. So if the cost of effort is uh, is low enough, then what you're suggesting will would not apply because uh, I would I would always adjust in the same direction because because the fact that he put that much more effort, if it's not that costly, uh, it, it's not. It's still going to make me change uh, in the same direction. I understand now. I see. I understand. So the other thing that I was wondering about that variable M. Okay, so just like the interaction between the difference between the effort and the neighbor and the different effort of the worker and the dummy on whether the neighbor produced more than the worker. 
So you mentioned at some point that the variable M takes value zero 58% of the time. Well, that, that's normal because if the dummy takes value zero uh, sometimes, that, you know, that's going to happen. Then positive value 23% of the time and negative value 19% of the time. So it's it's kind of like a symmetric variable, okay? In that more or less there is the same type of this, you know, density of mass on both sides. And I was wondering how is it possible that this variable takes negative values so often? Because a negative value of this variable means that the neighbor achieve a higher output than the worker, despite putting less effort. So that would mean that they are kind of like in the decreasing portion of the production function. Uh, but you find in the figure that we were referring to earlier that there is no decreasing portion, that it's kind of, you know, concave, but increasing throughout. Yeah, but you know, the thing is there is a distribution around that production function. So the, the lower output may still arise because of idiosyncratic conditions. So that's exactly why we, we are learning because otherwise we uh, otherwise we would never see that happening. I think you're right. It's not it's not the, the fact that sometimes it takes negative values. What, what puzzles me is... It's a lot, yeah. That it's a lot. Right. So, yeah. you know, if it was 5% of the time, I wouldn't worry about it. It's a 19% that I thought, okay, it seems a little bit. So there is another, there is another, uh, sorry, another thing that may affect that, which has to do with, uh, you know, when when, I pl- when we are plotting the production function, we're not netting out the differences in the, in the age of the chicken. So it could be that if we were to look at chickens that are particularly old or middle-aged or young, perhaps you would get more of a negative slope at some point. Perhaps when you are, when chickens are in, at their peak age, the production function may become almost linear, but then when they are very young, you do really have to hit an output maximizing point and you have a larger portion where the output is decreasing. So that could be the case too. So can you discuss what are the baseline results that you get from the regression that you described earlier? Yeah, so the baseline result is that we do see workers adjusting their amount of effort towards the level of their peers upon observing them achieve higher output. But most importantly, they do so only after the incentive change. They do not seem to be doing so that before the incentive change, we would speak, which would speak against uh, learning occurring over that time, but they do that after the incentive change. And in particular, they start doing that in the period in the period between the when the incentive is the incentive change is announced and when it's actually implemented. Upon the implementation of the incentive change, this uh, the, the, the the coefficient estimate that captures learning reaches uh, its maximum value and then starts decreasing thereafter and becomes again insignificant after for a period of around 4.5 months. So this would be consistent with the hypothesis that there is no need for learning before the incentive change happens because we're still operating at the same portion of the production function where we had been for a long while. Then the incentive, the, the firm announces that they're going to change incentives. This increases the scope for learning for the workers, uh, which reaches its maximum right after the implementation. And then learning as learning occurs, there is less a need to learn over time until there is nothing to learn anymore at the new equilibrium, which is towards the end of the sampling period. You were saying earlier that there are some like heterogeneity results that you can explore that also allow you to point in the direction of this learning mechanism. Yeah, so the observability of peers, of course, matters a lot in, in thinking about how workers are process, are gathering and processing information. So we can generate some placebo variable looking, uh, looking at the effort choice of output of co-workers that are not immediate neighbors of the worker that are supposedly more difficult to observe. And we do not see any evidence that workers are capable of learning from this 
workers that are located further away. We also look at whether learning a course more for workers that have high versus lower tenure. And here we find this interesting result because we see learning uh, occurring systematically more among workers with higher tenure after the incentive change. And on the one hand, we one could be surprised by this because these are workers that have been at the firm for longer. And so you would think that they have less to learn. But if we think about the fact that these workers had been operating at a different portion of the production function, then uh, this may not be the case. These workers are, uh, the, the, the scope for learning for these workers is just as high as for uh, workers that have been around for, for less time. And if anything, the fact that these workers are learning more tells us that they are probably more capable of processing the information that they gather in the right way and acting upon it. So in reading the paper, I was thinking that uh, something related to what you just said, which is that because the life cycle of the hands uh, determines the optimal amount of effort and production and so on, if there are two peers that happen to receive the badge on the same day, the potential for learning from each other is very high. But if one of them has young hands and the other one has old hands, but the fact that my neighbor put more effort or got more production than me doesn't really tell me so much about my own batch. Uh, do you have any type of like a variability in terms of the match of the life cycle of the hands that you could exploit there? Yeah, we uh, we know the time elapsed since the batch was first assigned to the worker. And, you know, even without thinking about the difference between in, in such a time elapsed between me and my co-workers, what our model will tell you is that at the very beginning, there is higher uncertainty about the, the productivity of this chicken. So you should be learning more upon, uh, you know, in, in the period right after you were first assigned the chickens. And that's what you see in the data. And then you can look at whether you learn the most when both you and your co-workers next to you have been both just assigned new chickens and that's that's what we find in our in our heterogeneity so we find results that are consistent with the with the amount of uncertainty in general being the highest when the chickens are the youngest so lastly you have a counterfactual exercise to estimate how many profits the firm loses from the fact that the workers are at least partial and informed about the shape of this production function uh, what do you find there? Yeah, so we find that uh, the firm is could have made five to seven percent higher profits over the uh, lear- what we call the learning period in the presence of complete information. So in the absence of imperfect information and the need of learning on behalf of the workers. Of course, you know, getting to these results requires imposing some strong assumptions uh, because the fundamental problem is we don't know the counterfactual. We would like what we w- what we're trying to understand here is what would have happened if these information issues were not there, right? and so. So we, what we need to do is to assume that workers were optimizing in the first part of the sample and that they are again optimizing in the last part of the samples where our learning estimates are insignificant. And then we, you know, after netting out a bunch of uh, the variation driven by workers, batches, days, and sorry, worker batches, uh, sheds, and so on, we're left with a, an average amount of food distributed by the worker, which we take as the optimal one, both in the first and in the last period. And then we just project the same optimal amount in the learning period uh, and this allows us to predict what would have happened if workers had not learned over over this period, but had instead moved immediately from the old optimum to the new optimum. And that's how we get uh, all these uh, these counterfactual effort choices, output, profits, revenues, and so on. Thank you, Francesco, for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much. My guest today has been Francesco Amodio. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.